Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm Nikki and I hope you are well wherever you are in the world listening to this podcast. Today is the last interview for the Winners in AI Australia New Zealand 2022. The series couldn't end on a better note than with my guest today, adjunct associate professor Helen Fraser. Helen is the clinical director of St. Vincent's Breast Screen and Breast Screen Victoria. Helen has over 20 years of clinical experience alongside research focused on the use of deep learning AI for breast cancer detection, ethical, legal, and social implications of AI in healthcare, user experience and workflow studies in cancer screening, and health workforce preparation for AI tools. Helen leads the BRAX AI research program that was awarded an MRFF grant to translate promising AI Mammography, mammography image reading results into breast cancer screening. She was awarded Women in AI 2022 Innovator of the Year. Helen, congratulations and thanks very much for joining me. Hi, Nikki. It's great to be here and hello to all of your listeners. Thank you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I know you're hectically busy, so we're going to try and keep to our time frame today, but it's such an interesting topic that we're discussing. It is, yes. So tell us a little bit about your journey and some of your highlights. Oh, thanks, Nikki. Yes, um, growing up, I was always interested and drawn to nature and science. I do remember as as a young child, and this isn't anything to be recommended for your listeners, but I remember sliding around, sliding down a, a two-story banister and falling, <laughs> skylarking around. And, and fortunately, I've lived to tell the tale. But, but at that time, I ended up having x-rays of my skull and forearm. And I remember really vividly, as though it were yesterday, being absolutely fascinated by the human body and the idea that you could look inside it. And, you know, as it turned out, I ended up doing medicine and then, then radiology. And I do have, a, I guess, a, a pivotal moment following um, med school and, and whilst I was studying radiology that, that I could, could share. And that was around about 20 years ago now when I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, following a, a breast imaging fellowship that I'd done in Sydney. And I was planning to undertake a, a body magnetic resonance imaging fellowship. And MRI, as it's known, was a rapidly evolving technology at the time. And, and a couple of my colleagues in Sydney had suggested that when I went to the US to keep my skill set broad, because I'd done a lot of breast imaging um, and I was early or, or just starting out in my career. But when I arrived across in Atlanta and, and it was day one at Emory Hospital, I met with the director of medical imaging and he had my CV in front of him. And and he asked me if I'd help them out in their breast imaging department because they were really short-staffed. They hadn't been able to recruit. And, you know, they were a site that was undertaking the first trial of, of digital technologies in breast imaging. And in particular, this was known as the digital mammography in screening trial. And, and in addition to this, I was also asked to assist the, the data scientists. Now, this is 20 years ago, <laughs> labelling sort of digitised film screen mammograms for the development of the very first computer-assisted or computer-aided detection systems looking for breast cancer on, on mammography. And these were really the fore, forerunner of artificial intelligence in breast imaging, which, you know, by the way, those first systems were not particularly helpful, but that, that's another story. You know, there's been an incredible evolution since then. But, but really from that moment 20 years ago, um, I've been engaged in the evolution of, of technology associated with, with breast cancer. 
So, so much for keeping your skill set broad. I mean, <laughs> you learn, go to America and brooks, zone in. Best laid plans, hey? <laughs> <laughs> I know, but how brilliant. Uh, you know, um, breast cancer is obviously a very topical um, thing, for, especially for women. Uh, tell us, look, I, I think we have so much, um, so many reminders, you know, go and get your, your breast checked up, check yourself and, Yet, I think for some women, the message is still not reaching them. What's your advice to women out there? Mm. Oh, I'm really pleased that you've asked this question, Nikki. It's so important. And I'm very happy to, to um, talk through this. I think firstly, and you've alluded to this, it's, it's really important to be breast aware. You know, and what does that mean? Well, by that, I mean to get to know the look and feel of your breasts and be aware of any changes like lumps, um, discharge from the nipple, if the nipple is indrawn or retracted, if there's any skin dimpling that can look a little bit like, like orange peel, or if there's a change in the contour of your breast, and any of those symptoms do require to go, go to your GP and undergo further evaluation with a clinical exam and usually referral to, for further imaging, like breast ultrasound and sometimes even a needle test. And that's really important. You know, that, that's something that it's important not to delay on because those signs and, and symptoms that I've talked about, they can definitely be an early warning or a warning for the presence of breast cancer. But for women that are asymptomatic, so they don't have any of those symptoms that I've, I've just talked about, once they turn 50, screening every two years is recommended. And then there's an, another cat category, women with strong family history or, or women that have a known genetic mutation, that they're recommended to, to attend high-risk clinics, specialised clinics for high-risk screening. And in these clinics, different imaging modalities are used, for instance, breast MRI. Um, so that would be, in a nutshell, a recommendation of, of thinking about yeah, being breast aware. If there's any symptom, go straight for further evaluation by your GP. If you're asymptomatic and at average risk to go through the, you can go through the screening program, mammography every two years following 50, and then the small category of women that are at a really increased risk of, of developing breast cancer to go through a high risk familial, familial cancer clinic. Yeah, look, I um, to all of our um, audience, and it's not just women, if you're married to a woman who's um, you know, your partner and she's not doing the right thing, put some pressure on. It's a bit like prostate cancer test, you know, arrives in the post, just do it. It's so easy. You know, like um, it's, it is prostate, isn't it? When they, is it bowel? No, it's bowel. Bowel cancer bowel, screening. Bowel cancer, that screening, yes. that you, you can do it at home. So, you know, come on, you know, just do it. It's not complicated. Look after yourself. Thank you, Nikki, for advocating <laughs> and spreading the message. Oh, listen, I can sit on my little my chair here telling people <laughs> what to do very easily. So oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. Tell us now, um, you mentioned AI 20 years ago. Uh, how has it changed for breast screening and, and like what have, what's been the progress and, and benefits that you've seen in all these years? Sure. Uh, look, we do see AI in operating processes like voice recognition software for dictation, for instance. And in fact, we've used that for many years. But in other ways, AI is very nascent in clinical decisioning and, and in high consequence healthcare settings where you know, decisions can actually roll out at scale, um, the clinical processes, there's still a fair amount of work to be done you know, to validate the algorithms and their generalizability, to evaluate them for lack of bias and to test them prospectively in, in real-world settings to account for all of the human factors you know, that, that are involved in cl clinical decisions. And 
if I focus especially on, on breast cancer screening as an example, we and others, other groups around, around the world, you know, have shown that retrospectively an AI reader can perform like a radiologist, but we've not demonstrated, you know, that the screening outcomes can be improved in real world populations and, and settings. And, you know, we do believe and, and think that there's great promise for an AI reader to replace one of our two radiologist readers in the screening program and see the accuracy improve and the woman's experience improve, time to results being shorter, for instance, and, and you know, opening up the, the potential for personalising the screening journey according to a woman's risk as, as well as reducing costs. So we see great, great promise um, and the technology is evolving rapidly, but there's there's work to do until before we see it in prime time. You know, I think um, AI is bandied out there as the cure all. And, you know, the, I, I think it's very important that we are realistic about its capabilities. Um, certainly, as you mentioned, um, maybe dropping one of the screeners instead of having two, because I imagine the salaries, time, everything that you're going along there could have a huge impact. But um, say now today, realistically, is there a percentage that you could put to it that you go, if, you, if you're looking at AI picking up some anomaly, like what percentage-wise is it? Well, our, our retrospective, you know, real-world screening cohort studies, and we've just completed one on, on just under half a million women, so it's a very large study. Yeah. The AI reader has performed at the level, if not a little bit better, than the average of our radiologist readers that, that read around the state of Victoria. And that's that's really exciting and incredibly encourage, encouraging. Yes. And in reading, because we have the two-reader model with a, a third reader, if they differ, to, to arbitrate, um, we have what we call an overall consensus model, which can be, you know, the two readers, if they agree, or introducing a third reader, so three radiologists reading if, if they differ. And we haven't reached the performance of the consensus with our AI reader. We still have quite a bit of work and further development to do on that. And we're, we're addressing that. We're working on that through data development as well as, as further model development. But I think in population screening programs, it's going to be hard to get the algorithm to perform at the level of that overall consensus. And, and whoever actually put that forward 30 years ago, we've been doing this for 30 years now for the screening program, there is genius in that, that the, the two readers together are better um, and sometimes a third than any of those readers individually. So, so we've certainly got work to do to get it up to consensus, but, but the AI reader is performing at the level of, of our you know, subspecialty trained often breast radiologists that read around the, the country. So, you know what, I've been having breast screens for, I don't know, however long I have. I'm, I'm very uh, pernickety about this. I go for all my tests. So, ladies, get out there and do what you have to do. How does it work? So, you go for your screen. Um, talk us through because I've never actually asked anyone because they're always so busy. So, I'm just going, just do what you need to do and I'll get, get dressed as quickly as I can. But how does it work? Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much again for advocating and, and, and encouraging your listeners and, and um, congratulations on looking after yourself. Um, in terms of when a woman attends for screening mammography, the first step is actually to have, have the mammograms, which is usually two views at right angles of, of each breast. And following that, the mammogram is read, as I mentioned, in, independently by two breast imaging radiologists. And if they agree, whether it be all clear, come back in two years' time, or actually there's an indication for cancer, come back to the recall for recall to assessment, um, that occurs. But if they differ, we bring in a third very experienced um, 
very you know high quality reader to make that final arbitration, either routine rescreen or, or come to assessment. So there's a a, a com not complicated, but there's a, a reader process that is time consuming and quite costly. But the re rationale behind that is that interpreting mammograms is challenging. Radiologists are looking for really subtle changes in, in preclinical asymptomatic women. So it, because of that, we have that two-reader model um, because it's also subject a bit to human variability. But that's, that's the reading process. And following reading, women will either get you know, there's no evidence of breast cancer demonstrated and you know, they'll be sent an invitation to return in, in two years' time. And that's 95% of the, of the work. So that's the overwhelming majority, fortunately, get that all clear result. Around about 5% of women are invited back to the assessment clinic with an indication for cancer. Only a minority of those women will have a, a cancer actually confirmed. And they come to the assessment clinic where they undergo further investigation with extra imaging, mammography, as well as ultrasound, clinical examination, sometimes a needle test. And they get the result whether their assessment has um, been all clear, they can re return to routine rescreen, or in fact, whether they have a diagnosis of breast cancer. And then there's a, a multidisciplinary process where um, they um, spend time with one of the, the program's breast surgeons, for instance, and the breast surgeon liaises with their GP and then a treatment pathway and further management is then undertaken following that time of breast screen. So that's the, the journey overall through the screening pathway. All right. And, um, you know, we've got an audience like young and old. When's the best time for women to start doing this? So for asymptomatic women that are of an average risk, the, the screening program, the, the optimum time is to come is from 50 years, age 50 to 74 years to attend for bilateral screening mammography. I actually, from memory, think I've done it. Uh, I was much younger than 50, um, but maybe I had a problem that I thought there was something wrong and actually had it checked. So generally speaking, um, women up until the age of 50, unless you're detecting something wrong, you don't have to go for a breast screen. So women over 40 years are eligible and able to attend the population screening program. Um, so that's correct. That may well be, have been the pathway that you took, Nikki. They're yeah. not actively recruited at that 40 to 49-year age group from the electoral roll where the women above 50 are. Um, so women over 40 are able to attend. However, based on the risk of, of cancer increasing with age, the advice is more broadly that screening is best applied from the age of 50. Okay. All right. Uh, the 50 when everything everything goes haywire in our bodies. So. <laughs> oh, ladies, you have all of this to look forward to. So buckle up. Hang on, Nikki. Isn't, isn't 50 the new 30? <laughs> oh, yes, of course, of course. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> so with you've, um, there are ethical, social and uh, legal, legal implications in AI. I mean, talk to us a little bit about, a little bit about breast screening and maybe a little bit general as well. Of course, yeah. Um, you know, the ethical, legal and social implications, I think, are where most of the challenges lie for the translation. Mm -hmm. In terms of the, the technology, it's really rapidly evolving and, and you know, it's really getting close to you know, hopefully being implemented. But, but the challenges and the blockers will be, you know, these, these ethical, legal, social factors, the, the people factors or the human side of it. I think the, you know, the significant ethical issue is associated with the potential biases in the data sets and the challenges of generalizability 
across the different cohorts. And one of the most important elements in dealing with this issue is to achieve as, as close to population scale data as is possible. And to also have, you know, the associated non-image data, and by that I mean all of those individuals' um, variables like age, and I'm speaking in the context of breast cancer here, but family history, do they have a symptom, do they take hormones, what happened at the reading of their mammogram, what was the result, if they came back to assessment, what happened, um, if they had a needle biopsy, what was the result, what was the pathology, what type of cancer is it, did it spread to the lymph nodes? The next steps, what was the treatment that that, that woman undertook? And then finally, um, in that full stage of the longitudinal data capture is a linkage to the death register. Did the woman die from, from breast cancer? So I think that, you know, is really, really important because what, what we really do need to do is to explore the AI's performance in the different cohorts to detect that bias or lack of, of generalizability and, you know, to unpack that more that, you know, does the algorithm work well overall? But when we look at an individual cohort, for instance, an age group, might be those younger women, 40 to 49, or a mammography machine type, a, a particular vendor, or a minority cohort, for instance, our Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander women, you know, does it work as well in these cohorts as it does across the, the broader population? And that is so important. And we're studying that deeply because we want AI to be fair and, um, and safe. So, you know, we really are fortunate to have incredible data sets, you know, image and non-image variables that enable us to explore this deeply and to understand performance in those, those cohorts. And the breast cancer screening data sets, they're globally unique. We're one of only 20 countries globally that offer a population screening program. They're unique in scale and quality. And, you know, we have this incredible data set of, of many variables for each screening episode, which has been collected over 30 years. The program's mature, it's been going 30 years. And the last 10 of those years, the, the capture of both image, you know, we've got a, a digital detector that acquires our mammograms, um, as well as the, the database, but the last 10 years are fully digital. So we've got this incredible resource to, to undertake this deep exploration, understanding all those ethical, legal and social implications. Helen, you're an incredibly busy woman. Um, like, how do you, how, just, this is now off the cuff, how do you manage your day to, you know, you go to a lot of events, you, you do a lot of stuff, how do you manage all of this? That's a really, really good question. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm a bit contrarian on the work-life balance, Nikki, <laughs> you know, but the way I see that is that, you know, I, I think if, if one can find something that, that, is a, is, a, is a real purpose and that that you can derive some passion from and inject passion into and feel like that you know you're making a great impact you know I, I think for me that is incredibly energizing and you know it's, it's it's a life work but then coupled with that there is the other aspect that it's so important to recharge and and you know I'm really mindful of that so you know I make sure that I spend time to to fill the bucket back up again and, and whatever, um, everyone has different things or different ways that they do that. For me, for instance, I love nature and, and I love bushwalking and, and things like that. But also the other aspect to, to really making it all fit together is, is the social connections. And yeah, I, I think that's how I'd approach it. <laughs> but, but in busy times for everyone, you know, I think it's actually, it is a little bit about scheduling your downtime each week. Yeah, you know, it otherwise is. it might not happen. You know, things bleed into <laughs> precious time away from, um, you know, work-related activities. Yeah. Um, 
the awards night. I was there. I, I saw you receive your award. Um, so happy. Congratulations. Uh, what did you think of the evening? Well, um, you know, thank you very much, Nikki. <laughs> I, um, you know, the award, I'll be really honest, the award is something I'm not used to. Yeah. But but I have to say I was, you know, I'm deeply honoured and, you know, I see it as a great recognition of, of the team and the partners that have come together to to try to, you know, genuinely try to transform screening and improve the woman's experience and save lives. I thought it was a magical evening. I um, I loved every minute and, you know, I'm so excited by the opportunity, you know, and, and I'm so, you know, I've just been delighted to meet incredible women and that are doing incredible things across so many disciplines. It's it's just been actually wonderful. Um, it's, I, I'm picking up on the you're not used to an award, which actually just blows my mind here that because um, if I can think of anyone that should get it, it is you. I've asked everyone this question. Did you nominate yourself or were you nominated? So I heard about the awards, Nikki, from a, a research colleague who had applied and she encouraged me to apply as well. And I would strongly recommend that any of your listeners that that are entertaining the idea of applying to absolutely go for it you know I think that um you know women are really good at telling and listening to each other's stories Mm. as well as advocating for each other you know I think women are really good at this but I, I really am hopeful that we get our stories out to that wider community and this is a perfect platform to do that you know we are still significantly underrepresented in in the STEM sectors so please apply. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to really crystallise what you're doing and where you're at and, you know, to really get your voice out there and, and let people know the great things that you're doing. Oh, I, I, this is one of my, my bugbears, Helen, that I want to, um, if, I, if I could reach anything with primary school kids when I talk to them is be confident in your abilities. You don't have to, you know, I'm not saying bragging, but just know what you're capable of doing. And and I think this is particularly relevant for women. We're not good at, at um, you know, blowing our own trumpet, just celebrating our own little awards because it's seen as a little bit tall poppy-ish and I don't know, all those other negative things out there. And I, I, don't, I don't think we do ourselves any favour in this area. I agree completely, Nikki. Yeah. I, th- I think we're evolving, though, aren't we? <laughs> you know, yes, we are. We are, definitely. Our, our voices are getting louder. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you've mentioned something about, which is actually quite interesting, because a couple of my other award winners have also mentioned the actual process of filling in the application form. It crystallised and showed where some areas maybe they needed to, you know, step up the game a little bit, or they looked at it and went, oh, my goodness, look at what I've achieved and done. Yes, I, you know, I'm, I agree with that very much as well. And, and I think it's, it's about taking time and, and crystallising those thoughts and, and getting perspective on what you're doing and, and where you're at and what you might consider doing going forward. So everything's really positive. And, and it was interesting. It was funny. I think um, around the time that the, the application was due for submission for the Women in AI Award, I was, I was working on a grant application and, and you know, the... It was a breath of fresh air, I must say, to do the Women in AI application <laughs> compared to this sort of incredibly sort of challenging and, and detailed grant application. So, you know, don't be bewildered, be excited and absolutely go for it. 
I hope you got the grant. And if not, send them this application. Go, look what I won. I need that grant. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so you extremely accomplished on all accounts. Have you got a mentor, you know, across your career? Oh, Nikki, wow. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to have some terrific mentors, you know, both both women and men. Um, but I, I think in, in the context of, of what we're talking about, women in, in AI, I, I do have a, a couple of mentors that straight away come to mind. And, and um, one of them is, is Dr. Jenny Corson. Um, she's been a, a fabulous mentor to me. And she's one of the women who, who founded the screening program when it first started in, in Victoria 30 years ago. And she recommended a while back now that I study epidemiology and, and biostatistics, which, you know, really subsequently made a big difference to me and my capacity to engage in the development of data sets and algorithms for AI. Another mentor whom I've met most recently or more recently is Lucia Guthrie. And Lucia's a, a pioneer in, in med tech, and she founded a company called LBT Innovations many years ago. And and Lucia's magnificent. She's she's always given me a very rich tapestry, a very frank advice, very honest and frank advice, but it's always peppered with tons of encouragement. And I'm really appreciative and grateful to both of them and, and many others that have helped me navigate my journey going forward. I think it's so crucial and um, congratulations to the women out there. I'm, I'm going to get their names and put it in the show notes so that everyone knows who they are because um, a, the recognition to other people who are helping you on. And, you know, I always say to, um, I say to my sons, my, my the adults, and because we, we talk about, you know, how, where you've got in your world. And I go, listen, we've got an army of angels out there working for us in the background. You just don't always know the people that are helping you because, you know, some can avert you, help you. But mm -hmm. I know for a fact that I've had people, you know, say things behind my back to help and connect me with other people, never asking for recognition or anything. And I think we've all got these people in our lives. We certainly have. It's, it's truly the case. And it's that, that great phrase, you know, it takes the village, doesn't it, yes. really? Yes. It's wonderful. Yes. And, I mean, we, we then in turn do it for other people. You know, yes. we all say nice things about them because they are nice people or we'll open it all for them and not expecting anything back. So um, I think it's called the karma effect. And, you know, what you put out there, you're going to get back in some way or shape. That's right. That karma bus just keeps on <laughs> yeah. coming. <laughs> yeah. The, the bus that keeps on giving. <laughs> yes, exactly. I agree. So, Helen, I'm mindful of your time. Thank you so much for joining me today. Have you got any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, thank you so much, Nikki. And a yeah, closing thought, you know, I think we are really at the beginning of a revolution in healthcare, the use of technologies and data. And, and it's probably really apparent to, to all of your listeners that the need for a transformation of healthcare or the healthcare system is upon us. You know, we've got the challenges of an ageing population, we've got workforce developments, budgetary pressures, and, you know, the pandemic has absolutely exposed this. You know, it's always been there, but, but, you know, it's really exposed it. And I'm really optimistic, though, that we can solve many of these problems, and especially if we, we bring clinicians together with the engineers and the data scientists, social scientists, that, you know, that's where the magic happens and that's where we're going to have great impact. And, and yeah, I'm just really looking forward to the next five to ten years in the life sciences. Well, look, um, having seen you accept your award and speaking to you, I'm confident um, that's 
we you our whole healthcare system is in the right hands yours so i'm not articulating myself very well here but i'm just filled with hope that if there are women like you out there looking after women like me then we're in very very good hands oh thank you nikki <laughs> yeah it's my pleasure so um to our audience oh helen where can they reach you linkedin linkedin okay all right so to our audience if you haven't uh, followed or connected with helen on linkedin please do so now. Um, I will put her link um, in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. I hope you have a great day wherever you are in the world and I look forward to your company next week. Mm-hmm.